Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 600 for the 8th of July, 2018. This week, when it's time to replace a computer monitor, you have lots of choices to consider. One monitor or two, small, large, or enormous, standard or high resolution. When a monitor began failing recently, I had to work through these questions, and I'll share what I discovered. In Short Circuits, a company that provides high-priced, long-distance services for jail and prison inmates has lost data with usernames, email addresses, and hashed passwords for nearly 3,000 people. Many of them are law enforcement or prison officials. This is the 600th TechBiter podcast. I thought it might be fun to listen back to a few minutes of some of the earlier, more primitive efforts. In spare parts, only on the website, virtual private network technology is used to secure communications via a Wi-Fi hotspot, but there are other uses, including the ability to make geographically blocked content available. And travel industry sites are increasingly under attack. The torrent is increasing. When one of the monitors on my primary computer showed signs of failing, it was time to replace both monitors. Two, or maybe three, questions needed answers. I'll run through the process that I used to make the decision, and when it's time for you to replace a monitor, you can decide to use my method because it's unquestionably brilliant, or discard it because it's obviously idiotic. Your choice. Before getting to the questions, maybe I should explain why one failing monitor means replacing two monitors. I do a lot of work with photographs, and it's important for color to be consistent on both monitors. Not the kind of consistency that comes with monitors that cost $2,000 each, but the kind of consistency that's good enough. By the way, here's a spoiler alert. I can tell you that the monitors I bought each cost about $240, so less than $500 for both monitors. The two primary questions I needed to answer involved the physical size of the monitor and the number of pixels the monitor displays. Most monitors today are in the 17 to 30 inch range. Some smaller monitors are available all the way down to 12 inches if you want something that small. And larger ones are available, sometimes exceeding 50 inches. Keep in mind that monitors and television screens are measured from the lower left corner to the upper right corner, diagonally and pixels are measured horizontally and vertically. Determining the size of the monitors was easy. I didn't even consider one question that's fairly common. That question is one monitor or two. As monitors became less expensive, having more than one monitor seemed like a good idea. And in fact, it is a very good idea for anybody who needs to refer to online reference materials while working. When I decided to replace a 17-inch monitor several years ago, I thought that maybe a 24-inch monitor might be a good stand-in for dual monitors. I found out very quickly that it is not. There are lots of good reasons for this, but the primary reason seems to be what happens when the user puts a window in full-screen mode. 
If you have a single monitor, full screen means exactly that. It takes up your entire working surface. If you have two monitors, full screen leaves the second monitor untouched. I explained this to my younger daughter, a graphic designer who at the time was already using two monitors. I think perhaps she was thinking something like, you idiot, even though she was far too polite to say it. So I added a second 24-inch monitor. It was the same make as the original 24-inch monitor. Not the same model, though. That model had been discontinued. Consistency from one monitor to the other wasn't ideal. And I learned then that matching dual monitors is a good idea. Several years later, I replaced the two 24-inch monitors with two 27-inch monitors. That turned out to be the perfect size for the space available. So when it was time to replace those monitors, the question about physical size had already pretty much been answered. If you've decided you want to go with two monitors and you haven't answered the size question yet, let me suggest that the center of the workspace is not where the dividing line between the monitors is. You'll want to have one monitor centered where you're looking. For me, that's the left monitor. The monitor on the right side is positioned so that I need to turn my head a bit to view it. Maybe that's because English is a left-to-right language. Or maybe it's because I'm left-eyed, even though I'm right-handed. Some might suggest it's because I'm a liberal. Well, whatever the underlying reason, it is clear to me that my primary monitor should be on the left. So I'd be looking for two matched 27-inch monitors, and that left the question of resolution. Resolution has actually changed more than monitor size has. In the earliest days, CGA monitors had 320 by 200 pixel resolution. Most of them displayed 16 colors, and they were amazing. Then came 640 by 480 pixel monitors. These were followed by VGA monitors, 800 by 600 pixels, with, wow, 256 colors. Could it get any better than that, I wondered at the time? Well, yes, it could. XGA monitors with 1,024 pixels horizontally and 768 pixels vertically and 65,000 possible colors came next. That was followed by several new video standards that could display 16.7 million colors. The monitors I needed to replace were full high-definition or FHD monitors. That's 1,920 pixels wide, 1,080 pixels tall. Although I was satisfied with full high-D, the quad high-definition or QHD specifications seem to be a better choice today. QHD monitors have 2,560 pixels across, 1,440 pixels tall. In the early days, computer monitors mimicked television screens with a 4x3 format, but most current monitors have adopted the 16x9 widescreen ratio used by HD television. There are many other high-definition video standards. Several notebook computer manufacturers offer 3200 by 1800 pixel resolution on their built-in monitors. Some of Microsoft's Surface Pro computers have 4500 by 3000 pixel resolution. The problem with these resolutions on the relatively small screens is the text, although it's astonishingly clear and crisp, is so small that it's virtually unreadable. My primary computer is a Lenovo P50 notebook. It has a 15.6-inch screen, offers 4K resolution. That's 3840 by 2160. Now, as wonderful as that sounds, the text is so small that it's unreadable. 
That's why I run the computer with the case closed and view only the external monitors. If you look hard enough and have enough money, you'll even find monitors with the ultra-wide 10K specification. Those displays have 10,240 pixels across, 4,320 pixels vertically. You'll see an illustration on the TechBiter Worldwide website that shows CGA, VGA, SVGA, XGA, FHD, and QHD screens, all in one illustration. And when you look at that illustration, you'll undoubtedly notice that the TechBiter Worldwide website doesn't expand to fill the full screen for anything larger than 1600 pixels. That is intentional because allowing extremely long lines of text would make the text much more difficult to read. Additionally, few applications are designed for full-screen use on larger high-res screens. Some of the notable exceptions are those by Adobe, Dreamweaver, Lightroom, Photoshop, Audition, and Premiere in particular. In Dreamweaver, instead of having a very narrow code view, I can see both the full-screen visual representation of the page and a comfortable code view display. Realistically though, monitor buyers today should probably stick with 4K monitors or less. 4K is 4096 pixels wide, 2160 pixels tall. My choice, as I mentioned, the Quad HD seems to be the current sweet spot for resolution and price. Quad HD monitors and the option to display randomly selected background images create some surprising and sometimes amusing combinations on the two screens. For example, one of our small kitties on the screen and lions or cheetahs on the other. Or a camel from the wilds appearing to observe the Franklin Park Conservatory. Or both daughters and their husbands on separate screens. So with the size and resolution questions answered, that brings us to the third question about how much to spend. Well, maybe that depends on how much money you have. Do you want to spend $2,000 per monitor? You can, and you'll certainly purchase the highest quality devices. But do you need that amount of quality? Would you know how to use it? I grew up in a small town where one of the residents was a very wealthy man. This was back in the 1960s, if you need a time reference. He bought a Hasselblad camera because it was the best camera available. And it certainly was. Hasselblad quality was unequaled. But he didn't know how to use the camera, and it sat on the shelf. If you buy a high-end monitor, you'll need to understand color management to use it effectively. You'll also need to position the monitor properly and run color management software regularly. I run XRite's ColorMonkey color management software. It is not the most comprehensive color management application available, but it's sufficient for my needs. There we go back to the old good enough. If you spend a lot of time working with photographs, a color management system might be worth investing in. So for the monitors, eventually I decided to purchase two AOC Q2781PQ monitors. They're good, but they're not exceptional. And because the technology used to create those monitors is now about two years old, the price had dropped by about 40%, and that explains the $240 per monitor price. Is that the right answer for you? Maybe. Maybe not. And if you still have a single monitor, perhaps that other question really does need to be asked. Do you need two monitors? I can't imagine working with just a single monitor. But not everyone likes two monitors. 
So choose the arrangement that works best for you and avoid pronouncements by pundits that everyone must follow the same rules. In short circuits, a company that police and prison agencies depend on to track information about phone calls to and from prisoners in many jails and prisons has been hacked. And according to Motherboard, it was largely their own fault. Motherboard is an electronic publication by Vice Media. The publication says the hacker has provided some of the stolen data to Motherboard, including usernames and poorly secured passwords for thousands of Securus's law enforcement customers. The firm Securus provides exorbitantly priced telephone services that families are required to use if they want to communicate with inmates in many of the nation's prisons. The hacker sent several internal company files to Motherboard. One of the documents contained nearly 3,000 usernames, email addresses, phone numbers, hashed passwords, and security questions. Hashed passwords aren't the actual passwords, but an encrypted representation of the password. A secure hash that's also salted is generally considered to be secure. Securus, however, failed to secure the passwords by using a salt. Salting refers to the process of adding random data to create a one-way function that virtually ensures the password cannot be reconstructed from the hash. Instead of doing it the right way, though, Securus used only MD5 hashing, a process that is known to be weak. Motherboard says most of the information is from users who are in sheriff's departments and local police departments. Amusingly, the names also include Securus staff members. The full article, if you'd like to read it, is on the Motherboard website. There is a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. If I needed something to make me feel old, this is it. TechBiter is 600. This is episode 600, meaning the podcast has been running for 12 years. Prior to starting the podcast, it was Technology Corner on WTVN Radio for about 15 years. Some people commit murder. They're convicted, sent to prison, and released on parole in less than 27 years. And yet, here we are. If you're wondering how 600 episodes works out to be 12 years, and you think it really should be about 11 and a half years, or if you're really precise, 11.538 years, that's based on a year having 52 weeks. Well, that's because there is no podcast Thanksgiving week and none at the end of the year. So 50 episodes per year comes out to 600 in 12 years. All right, enough pedantry. This segment is at the end of the podcast because not everybody appreciates navel-gazing, and that's mainly what this is. So if that's the case, well then, class dismissed, and I'll be back next week. If you're still here, let's listen back to May 12th, 2006. The first podcast was actually in three parts. Most of it was experimental and not very informative. Testing, testing, this is a test if you're able to hear this. And because you're listening to it, obviously you are able to hear it. You have successfully downloaded and installed 
some sort of program that allows you to listen to podcasts, and you've connected to and downloaded this test Technology Corner podcast. Hurrah, hurrah. The first real podcast occurred on the 11th of June, 2006, without a produced open or close, and there was no music between the segments. Hello, this is Technology Corner for the week of June 11th. I'm Bill Blinn, with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour, because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. There was still no produced open or close by January 7th, 2007, but the script had changed a bit. Hello, this is TechBiter Worldwide, formerly Technology Corner, for the week of January 7th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. In 2008... I added the first produced opening for the show. Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I gotta plug this. Okay, I hear you thinking. What's going on? It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. It's TechBiter Worldwide for the first week in 2009, January 4th. And you're wondering, what was all that? I heard from a lot of people who didn't like that one, so it lasted for only a year. That was also the year that I tried to replicate the sound of WCOL from the mid-1960s. All of the extra compression and reverb were not well received. That effect actually went away after just a few programs. Then in January 2009, I dropped that opening shocking sequence, but retained the music, and it remained unchanged until 2013. That's when I tried a twangy guitar opening. It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 325 for January 13th, 2013. And in January 2015, the current produced open debuted. TechBiter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 424 for January 4th, 2015. This week, I've been yammering about the new look and feel for months. Finally, you get a chance to see them. The audio quality has improved. In the early years, the MP3 files were produced at the lowest acceptable quality, more or less equivalent to AM radio. But as high-speed internet connections became more common, I pushed the production standards up to where they are now with a 48 kilohertz sample at a constant 112 kilobits per second rate. So thanks for listening. Whether you've been around since the radio days when Technology Corner could be heard in Ohio and parts of Indiana, Michigan, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Kentucky, 
or you started listening when TechBiter Worldwide became available on the Internet, or even later. And then there's spare parts. You can't listen to it because it's only on the website. This week, virtual private network technology is used to secure communications via a Wi-Fi hotspot, but there are other uses, including the ability to make geographically blocked content available. And travel industry sites are increasingly under attack. The torrent is increasing. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.